Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And of course, I am Lauren. And that's all of us. So, good stuff. Yes. Hi. How you guys doing? Welcome back. Thanks for your patience during our hiatus. I know we've had several lately. Sorry, that one was my bad. Had to go to court for a thing. Needed lots of extra prep time. Yep. So, thanks thanks for sticking around and waiting for us to come back. Yes. As a little gifty to you guys for waiting, we are going to discuss something that is highly requested. This was the number one voted on topic in the Spooky Psych survey. Thank you so much to everyone who completed the survey. We appreciate it. definitely do. So, you guys voted that you wanted to hear us talk about dissociative identity disorder. You did. Here we are. We're going to talk about it today. So, um, before we get into it, um, I don't think we have any new patrons this month, but we did get a really cool, nice message. Um, I think we're getting the same message. Okay. (laughs) From From Katie? from katie yeah hi katie Katie. your message was so so nice yeah she she works at um a domestic violence shelter um and race rape crisis center and she was saying that she and her co-workers listen to the podcast so i definitely wanted to give them a shout out and say hi and thank you for listening yeah, and Katie, thank you so much for sharing our podcast at a meeting. It that's sounds cool. like that's a that's a lovely thing to do. So, hello to Katie's coworkers who heard about us from that meeting. What's I'm glad up? To have you. Yes, welcome. In the past, I have absolutely worked at um, a domestic violence rape crisis shelter as well. So, I have a very a very special place in my heart for. The work that you guys are doing, I know it's not easy, but you are so needed and so appreciated. And we're just so glad to have you here. Yes. So thank you. Shout out to the gals in Indiana. Shout out to just the whole state of Indiana. (laughs) What's up, Indiana? How are you guys doing? Um, So, yeah. yeah. This episode is going to be interesting, and I think... We want to do this as best we can, so we got some big caveats we're just going to throw here at the beginning. A lot of um, prefacing some things. A lot of prefacing and contextualizing. So first of all, right off the top, neither Lauren or myself is a specialist in dissociative identity no. disorder. Neither of us is capable of diagnosing dissociative identity disorder. Nope. Not at all. Um, And also, there is a lot of misinformation about dissociative identity disorder, both in the media, in television representation, but also recently in a lot of YouTube and online Mm -hmm. platforms. And so we are really just here to tell you what the research says. Yes. So we're, we're basing everything on just factual evidence and what we know to be helpful. Um, you know, I was talking to Megan before about, um, 
you know, my training in EMDR and, um, it was, it was very intensive training on trauma and naturally with trauma comes different types of dissociative disorders. Um, so dissociative identity disorder is only one disorder under the dissociative spectrum. So that's really important to understand too. Um, and in my training, we are able to, um, assess and see if people have, you know, high dissociative qualities and learn when to like refer out to get the help that they need. Um, but this type of disorder absolutely needs a specialist. And the thing to highlight with that is there are very few people who have the adequate training and are, you know, trained enough to work with this disorder where um, they can diagnose it, they can, you know, help clients see the results that they need. Um, so that's a really important factor too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, you know, I have had the privilege of working with individuals who had been diagnosed previously with dissociative identity disorder. However, that was in a residential treatment center. I was not in charge by any means. I interacted with a few people and followed, you know, a general support plan that an expert had told the staff to put in place, but by no means am an expert. And I think, you know, and also we really, to do this episode right, we need to touch on the concept of self-diagnosis um, because there seems to recently be a lot of people on the internet who are talking a lot about dissociative identity disorder who claim that they have self-diagnosed themselves with dissociative identity disorder and self-diagnosis is not always wrong sometimes you track your symptoms and you do get it correct but you mm -hmm. always need to take it's just information from strangers on the internet always needs to be taken with a grain of salt and right you know, it's it's a complicated issue. I get it. Medical care can be difficult to access where you are. And I fully support tracking your symptoms and advocating for proper treatment and advocating for, you know, telling your clinician, I am seeing these symptoms. I want to get assessed. But with DID especially, it is important to note that, like Lauren said, there are lots mm -hmm. of dissociative disorders. Mm hmm. Also, dissociation is common in a lot of disorders that are not dissociative disorders. Right. And like there's there's a normal amount of dissociation that all human beings do. And I can kind of get into what that looks like later. Right. And so we just want to, you know, preface this, you know, it is possible that some people who have self-diagnosed themselves with dissociative identity disorder may actually have it. Mm -hmm. But there are also lots of other disorders that look close to dissociative identity disorder. And, you know, it's the same with medical things. There are some things that are so obvious, like a cold, that you can usually tell that's what it is. But mm -hmm. differential diagnosis with mental disorders is a really complicated thing. And in order to accurately diagnose everything, you have to rule out every other potential cause mm -hmm. and there's a very few people in the world that can yeah. uh, diagnose dissociative identity disorder so just want to put that caveat 
in there that people who are saying they have it may or may not, and we cannot verify the proper diagnosis of people we've never worked with, nor can Lauren or I really properly <laughs> diagnose DID. Right. We can just refer out if we have some suspicions and... You know, later in this episode, I'll kind of talk about some resources um, for if, you know, you suspect you have it, um, just to kind of like point you in the right direction. Because, you know, not knowing like what's going on is just, you know, doing a disservice to yourself. It's important to surround yourself with professionals who know what they're doing and can actually help you. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are you so few specialists and in order to get you know did is a pretty serious diagnosis and it's not just about proper diagnosis it's about getting treatment that's actually going to help and with the cases of did there are some treatments that people have tried that definitely make things worse so you really need Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're seeing a specialist getting an accurate diagnosis so you can get treatment that's actually going to help you instead of harm you. And that's why it's so important, you know, if you do think you have a mental illness, any mental illness, you want to make sure that you're finding a specialist that can diagnose and treat that. And that's why accurate differential diagnosis is really important to treatment. Yep. Yep. So again, underlined, highlighted, we're not experts. We're just giving you factual information yep we are not experts and we can't really verify people on the internet and whether or not they do or do not have any disorder ever yep fun times in warning land there you have it there you have it um so first of all what is dissociative identity disorder so Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, is a rare, and we're just going to underline rare like 50 to 100 times. Um, I've heard people saying that 10% of the population has DID. There has been no evidence to ever back that number up. Um, So pretty rare in all research. Is it possible that more people have it than the research indicates? Yes, but we have to go off of the information we have. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a rare condition in which two or more distinct identities or personality states are present in and alternately take control of an individual. Um, This is something some people describe it as an experience of possession, like another being is possessing you and taking over your body. Um, The person also experiences memory loss that is too extensive to be explained by ordinary forgetfulness and also... Again, you'd have to rule out every other cause of memory loss before getting to DID. It was called multiple personality disorder up until 94, so pretty recently, that Mm -hmm. it's DID. Um, The name was changed just because more research and understanding came out. A lot of times names for disorders change over time. Um, They're saying that it's more of a... fragmentation or splintering of identity into different identities rather than being multiple different people in one body. Um, The symptoms of DID cannot be explained away as the direct psychological effects of a substance or general 
medical disorder. So again, that's where the differential piece comes in. A lot of times when you, it's like the same with uh, disorders with psychosis. A lot of times when people are presenting with first time psychosis, you need brain scans and a bunch of other stuff to make sure there's not a medical cause for it. Um, so lots of, lots of complicated stuff. Um, some of the criteria are from the DSM-5 or the individual experiences two or more distinct identities or personality states, each with its own enduring pattern of perceiving, relating to, and thinking about the environment and self. Some cultures describe it as an experience of possession. The mm -hmm. disruption in identity involves a change in sense of self, sense of agency, and changes in behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and motor function. Frequent gaps are found in the individual's memories of personal history, including people, places, and events for both the distant and recent past. These recurrent gaps are not consistent with ordinary forgetting. The symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Yep. Yeah, so them's the criteria. Um, so now we got some basic statistics. Um, again, we don't have, this is not the most researched disorder. So we got our basic stats we can go over. Dissociative identity disorder is diagnosed nine times more often in females than in males. Um, mm -hmm. Statistics can, in research is showing the prevalence somewhere between 0.1% and 1% of the general population. So there are studies that indicate a higher percentage in long-term psychiatric care, which would make sense that it would be more likely to be shown in that population. Mm -hmm. um, a history of severe abuse is thought to be associated with DID. The signs and symptoms include losses of time, memory lapses, blackouts, often being accused of lying, finding what seems to be strange items among one's possessions, having strangers recognize the person as someone else, feeling mm -hmm. unreal and feeling like more than one person. Um, you know, a lot of the stats indicate ruling out other causes is the most complex factor in diagnosing DID. And there have been cases of people who benefit emotionally or legally from having DID, pretending to have it. So there have been documented cases, including individuals who molest children, creating a personality that is a Aww. pedophile in legal cases, yeah. trying to prove it. Um, some individuals with antisocial personality disorder or in cases of Munchausen do have documented cases of faking DID. Um, and people with DID may have trouble keeping a job, maintaining relationships, and are at a pretty high risk of drug and alcohol abuse, as well as hurting themselves or others. Yeah, and what, what sucks about the people kind of manipulating the system um, and saying that they have disord this disorder, um, it really, again, it just like goes against like the legitimacy of the disorder and and that's really harmful to the population that actually does have dissociative identity disorder right there is a large group of people who do not believe that it is a real disorder lauren do you believe that it's a real disorder 
I do. I do as well. <laughs> so Yep. I definitely do. I think it's rare. I think, you know, there are like very specific things that need to be in place. I I wouldn't go around, you know, diagnosing it like willy nilly. Um, but I do think it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's sufficient evidence that it is a thing, but unfortunately, some of the more famous cases of it have been well documented as not being accurate for a lot of reasons, which does fight against the legitimacy. Um, and again, documented cases of people with other illnesses um, kind of pretending to have DID doesn't help the Definitely. situation. Definitely. And that kind of goes into like this next part that I wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, so as we mentioned before, dissociation is a very, very common experience that most people have to some degree. Uh, so an example that I give to all of my clients that I work with of dissociation um, is actually something that's on the scale that I use. Um, so the example that I give is if you've ever had the experience of driving somewhere and suddenly realizing that you don't remember what has happened during all or part of the trip. So, you know, I'll usually ask people, like, have you ever experienced that where you're driving to Jewel or something and you get there, you're like, wow, I don't remember <laughs> driving here. Like, obviously, I know I got here, but um, I don't remember certain pieces of the trip. That's a super duper normal thing. Mm -hmm. All that's happening is that your brain is usually processing something. So your body just kind of physically goes along with whatever you're doing. Um, and that's all that dissociation is. Dissociation is a way to manage overwhelm. Um, so when your brain is super overwhelmed, sometimes it's easier to kind of have your body go on autopilot so that it gives more room in your brain to process what's going on. Um, so again, that's normal. That's a normal amount of dissociation. Mm -hmm. So something um, that as an EMDR clinician we are trained to do is to be able to identify dissociation um, and especially to be able to identify dissociation that's going towards like some sort of dissociative disorder. Um, and the reason that we're trained to be able to pick up on it and notice it is so that we can refer out. Now there are some EMDR clinicians that have specialty training to work with dissociative identity disorder and other dissociative disorders. Um, I'm not one of them. You know, I, I definitely work with complex PTSD, but uh, you know, this certain level of dissociation is not in my expertise. So the reason that I know uh, you know, a certain amount of this is because I need to be able to refer out appropriately. Um, and one of the tools that I use is something that's called the Dissociative Experiences Scale. Um, now, online people will say that this is a self-assessment. However, I don't think that it's wise to do this on your own without consulting a therapist to go over it with you because there are times I'll go over, you know, this assessment to screen somebody and they are confused about the way that questions are worded. Um, I have to ask follow-up questions. I need to clarify things for them. And that's so important when doing an assessment is that you fully understand 
the question and what you're answering. Right. And technically, self-assessments for psychological phenomena and disorders do not mean that they are a tool where you can take it and diagnose yourself. All a self-assessment means is that you're the one that's filling it out and it's assessing your own experiences. Right. To be given to a professional, like, okay, this is the certain number I came up with Mm -hmm. or this is what I'm experiencing. So it's helpful. It's so helpful. Absolutely. But just knowing this does not equal a for sure diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So the dissociative experiences scale measures a wide variety of dissociation, including both problematic dissociative experiences, normal dissociative experiences, again, like the driving and not remembering part of the trip. And another example they give is daydreaming, also super normal. Um, But it's a screening tool for dissociative disorders, especially dissociative identity disorder um, and also dissociative disorder not otherwise specified. Mm -hmm. So um, I just wanted to kind of give you guys some examples of questions that show up on this scale. So the one about grocery shopping, I already brought up to you guys, and that's a very normal one. see what other good ones I have here. I just want to give you examples of like where if somebody scored high on one of these, it would be a little bit concerning or I may have to refer out. Um, okay. So another one that, so one that's concerning to me is some people have the experience of finding new things among their belongings that they don't remember buying. So, um, I think even Megan Man mentioned this when you're talking about the diagnosis. Um, So, you know, with dissociative disorders, you lose um, large gaps of time. So that could include times where maybe you bought things or took things and you just truly don't remember taking it. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is some people sometimes find that they're approached by people that they do not know who call them by another name or insist that they have met them before. So again, this would kind of indicate like, okay, like, is there a time where I'm in a dissociative state that I don't remember where I refer to myself as something else? Right. And the level of dissociation with DID can be to the point where like, you may have a romantic ongoing relationship with somebody that you do not know that you've ever met. Like someone you have on alters may have ongoing friendships or romantic relationships and all of these interactions different like wardrobes and stuff so you could find stuff that you would never wear or just it's truly bizarre because there's a lot of dissociation happening definitely okay so this is what this could be another type of dissociative disorder but it's definitely a concerning one um Some people find that they sometimes hear voices inside their head that tell them to do things or comment on things that they're doing. Um, That's another concerning one, too. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, you know, we look at certain questions and how they're answered and how they're rated. And based on the rating, we're able to see kind of what bracket they fall in. Now, with some of these things, um, you know, even something like PTSD, 
um, could better be explained by some of the symptoms that show up. Um, so we have to be really careful when doing these assessments. That's why I say, you know, do it with a clinician, do it with someone who's trained to ask the follow-up questions that are necessary. Right. And even with the hearing voices, could be dissociative, could be psychosis. And actually in the mm -hmm. media, a lot of times schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder are used pretty interchangeably in media. Yeah, it's weird. Like in movies, they'll be like, you're schizophrenic. And it's just like that clearly is not what schizophrenia is. So there's right. a lot of confusion on how to actually separate different disorders in the way it's presented. Exactly. Yeah, I want to say even um, that one Jim Carrey movie, it was like Me, Myself, and Irene. Mm -hmm. I want to say in that movie, they're like, oh, he has schizophrenia. And it's like, no, no, he doesn't. Schizophrenia <laughs> like, that's and not what that is. personalities are completely different disorders with right. completely different causes, even though it's always possible they could present pretty similarly. So, because th things like hearing voices and finding objects you don't recognize could also be related to psychosis, and it can cause mm -hmm. memory gaps too. So again, can be very complicated to separate, and the media perception, I do remember that with me, myself, and I read people, like, that's not what schizophrenia is at all, but No, I was, okay. like, I was like, oh, this is schizophrenia and narcissism and something else, and it's like, holy cow, like, this cannot be more inaccurate. But anyway, so, you know, a part of, part of, you know, kind of screening people and, and helping them realize like, oh, I might have some sort of dissociative disorder. I may need to go figure this out. You know, a lot of people wonder like, okay, what recommendations are there for the treatment of this type of disorder? Um, just because it is so rare and it is so complicated. Um, so a really great resource, and I'm going to give a couple to you guys, is, um, this place, I want to say it's in Virginia, but it's the International Society of the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. So these are what are considered experts in this disorder. They do a ton of research. They really dedicate their lives and their profession to understanding this and learning how to treat it. Um, so they are really cool. And I actually reached out to the president, but I'm sure she's a busy woman and couldn't get back to me. So that's okay. Fair. Not offended. Um, so I went to their website to kind of see, you know, what are the current recommendations for treatment? Um, so they suggest that treatment needs to include a strong therapeutic relationship, which is good in any type of That's disorder. Standard for all therapy. That should be that. Yes. step one. Um, a safe therapeutic environment. Again, always good. Step two. Appropriate boundaries. Always great. Development of no self or other harm contracts. Um, we had brought this up before that, you know, folks with dissociative identity disorder might be more likely to harm themselves or others. Um, so having a contract like that in place is super helpful. Mm -hmm. An understanding of personality structures and kind of, you know, what's going on with, um, you know, different identities and, and what that might be resent. Uh, representing um, 
working through traumatic and dissociated material, um, that's going to be a huge bulk of the work that they do with their therapist is working through trauma so that the brain can start to repair itself and not need to fragment itself. Uh, the development of more mature psychological defenses, uh, the integration of states of self, so that can be better explained, um, you know, I think the jargon that's used nowadays is alters, um, but essentially that's states of self. So again, integration of traumatic memories is an essential piece of that treatment. Um, they say hypnosis can aid in following and allowing the client to gain control over dissociative episodes and the integration of memories. Um, I'll just kind of go on. The use of uh, hypnosis is highly controversial in all right. treatment. We'll just throw that in there. Right. So maybe not emphasize the hypnosis piece, but please hear the rest of this. Um, so the treatment of dissociative dis identity disorder is typically long and challenging, which is true. Um, spontaneous remission will not occur, so you'll not suddenly get better. Studies have shown that cognitive behavioral treatment of dissociative identity disorder can be beneficial. So CBT, some of you may be familiar with. CBT um, can be used to treat pretty most things in research to a varying degree of success. That almost always comes up. Yeah. Um, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is not generally recommended. Um, I think the reasoning behind that is because um, there might be some memory impairments that are involved with ECT and for somebody that already has issues with um, remembering things because of dissociation, that might not be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, EMDR, can be used in the treatment of DID, although it needs to be implemented with great caution. So, you know, definitely making sure the person is very trained in this specific type of um, diagnosis. So duh, 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 it says EMDR is a neuropsychological treatment designed to accelerate the processing of information to facilitate integration of fragmented trauma memories. Um, and there are a lot of trainings out there um, that can help EMDR clinicians if you want to go down that track and become an expert in this type of area. Um, so this is what uh, that website suggests. Um, there may even be more that, you know, I haven't listed, but I think, you know, to kind of boil it down, um, you need somebody that is highly trained in trauma. You need someone that can help you with um, managing uh, emotions. So that way, if you're highly stressed or highly anxious, um, your brain will fragment less often. And that way you can kind of work through things, you know, as yourself mm -hmm. and, and not have to utilize, you know, these different fragmented parts. Yeah. And you, you also, if you feel that you may have an, a dissociative disorder, then you want to see a dissociative disorder specialist. You don't want to see, like, you want to make sure on their listing they specify dissociative disorders. Yes. Um, because it's very hard to find someone who specializes in DID, but you definitely, for that proper assessment, want someone who specializes in the cluster of dissociative disorders. 
Exactly. That is what to look for if you need that. Um, so yeah, so that's what they're kind of saying in terms of things that would be helpful. Um, another research resource that's really cool is um, something called An Infinite Mind. Um, so this is a non-for-profit group that helps people um, with dissociative identity disorder. It's ran by a woman um, who is a mental health clinician um, but ended up finding out that she had dissociative identity disorder and basically has these conferences called the Healing Together Conference, where the main goal of it is to help, you know, raise awareness about the disorder, get people connected to people that can help, um, and also help train therapists and other mental health workers just to become more aware and cognizant of the needs that um, their clients may have if they have some sort of dissociative disorder. So that's a cool one as well. Um, so something that I love to talk about is, you know, different disorders in the media and how poorly it's uh, portrayed. But I found this really cool article um, in Psychology Today, and it talked about different times it showed up in the media. And um, it would kind of say, okay, you know, this is factual or this is not factual and this is why. So it was, it was cool to kind of read it and have this psychologist break it down. Um, so one example of how it showed up in the media was in The Three Faces of Eve, um, which was followed by Sybil. So it was a 1976 made-for-TV miniseries based on the book with the same name, The Three Faces of Eve. Um, starring Sally Field, oh wait, no, Sybil, <laughs> starring Sally Field as a timid graduate student suffering from DID. The striking difference between Eve and Sybil was the number of I the identities of the two women. So while Eve had just one more than Dr. Jackal, I don't know why they say that, um, Sybil has as many okay. as 13 personalities. Um, so is this consistent with what we know about the disorder? So what's found is um, Donald C. Goff, who is an instructor at Harvard University's Department of Psychi Psychiatry, found that the average number of identities of past to recent cases has increased from 3 to 12. So that's interesting and definitely surprising. Like, I was surprised when I saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the films Raising Cain and Fight Club and Secret Window, the main character develops an identity to fulfill the darkest of desires and criminal impulses, uh, Mr. Hyde. In this case, or in this based on, is this based on fact or is it purposely mainly fiction? Um, so what they found is that this is fiction. Not all multiples develop maniacal alters. Most of them don't. So most times um, for people who do experience alters, it's more comforting um, and it's made to comfort them. Mm -hmm. um, so further, the development of DID is most often associated with childhood abuse, which splits the person's identity. The new alter essentially holds on to traumatic memories for the person, which then protects them from 
unimaginable suffering that might occur. Right, and I think some of the societal perception that people with DID always have, like, a serial killer altar or, like, something really aggressive does lend itself to some of the potentially fake cases of DID from, like, child molesters. Like, it wasn't me, I have an altar that's a pedophile. Or, like, different things. I think those have to be connected and a lot of times with DID you may have more aggressive alters like it's always possible but a lot of times like Lauren said it's a protector or some people may have one that's like more of a bold personality that comes out in stressful situations or is better in social where it's like different things that would benefit you and protect you not necessarily like I low-key want to hurt a bunch of people, but it would be bad, yeah. so I develop a personality that's really bad. Right, where it's, like, hurting a bunch of other people and being maniacal in that way, like, how is that benefiting you? Right. It's not. So, that's that's important to keep in mind. I also remember, like, suddenly, there was a movie, I think it was called, like, Motel, where it was, like, all of these, like, people, like, in a motel, and it was, like, a murder movie, where at the end of it, it was just, like, this person who supposedly had multiple personality disorder, um, and the lawyer and a psychiatrist was helping them kill off all, like, the personalities until, like, the good, quote-unquote, personality was left, and it was so bizarre and cheesy and just, like, not realistic, but... I just suddenly remembered that. Hmm. There are some really weird ones. There's even uh, an episode of the TV show Psych, where mm-hmm. the person, but even then, that one actually seemed weirdly more realistic, where the guy thought he was being haunted because he kept smelling perfume and, like, mm-hmm. finding long hairs around, and then the reveal was that the person actually did have dissociative identity disorder and had a female alter that would wear wigs and stuff so he was just finding wig hair and like perfume that he was putting on himself in an altered state um which that seems like more realistic almost where that would be something that someone with did you might have alters that have a different gender identity different characteristics uh different accents Mm -hmm. lots of different things but rarely also you would never murder your altars like that's bizarre like that's not a form of treatment that would ever happen (laughs) but anyway um so um another thing that the psychologist brought up was that all the tv shows and films mentioned have characters that switch quote-unquote to their distinctive emotional altars one alter is the fun-loving person then they switch to the brooding self-deprecating outcast um, are DID identities like this in real in reality? Um, and what the research is showing is no, not alters have such limiting traits. Many have as much of an emotional range as any other person. They are distinct and that they all have certain goals, talents, and aspirations, but they are not cor- cardboard cutouts of simplistic caricatures. So that's important to understand too. Like it's not going to be super cut and dry like that all the time they're they have the full range of people it's not like it's one trait they're they're like people right right exactly um another thing that was brought up is um 
Tara from the United States of Tara had a female altar, but she also had a teenage altar and a male altar. Um, is the use of altars of different ages and genders simply the media attempting to spice up the story for ratings, or is this accurate? So, um, what research is saying, according to the American Psychiatric Association, is that this is true, um, and the National Institute of Mental Health. Mm -hmm. um, a number of studies agree that, yes, altars can be different ages and genders. And I think it's all about how it serves the person and protects them. Right. And us saying that, like, it's about protecting and about benefiting, that doesn't mean that it's a beneficial thing to have DID. It causes a whole lot of issues and consistency in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, it's not, it may be a harm related thing but usually like harm may happen but usually the altars are not trying to harm like they're not evil they're it's just it looks different right like for example like i was in our training and the trainer was jim knipe so he's definitely a specialist when it comes to dissociative disorders and he was talking about like altars or like these fragmented pieces that are harmful to the person so for example like if they have like an altar um that will most likely like self-harm or, or do something like that it's the reasoning behind it is like it it's an attempt to control or self-soothe in a way that's actually not helpful mm -hmm. so it's it's almost like a piece that's fragmented that's less mature than other pieces right and i also think some of the issues of self-harm and suicide attempts and drug use in cases of did may or may not be related to the alters themselves but people with did also there's a high comorbidity with mood disorders and depression mm -hmm. and those are all things that you would see in it that you could not necessarily would, but you could see in a depressed individual. And right. so there's a lot of complicated things happening. Definitely. Um, so, thank you for... Sh I always love the media stuff. And did you ever watch United States of Terra? I've seen, like, one episode. I never really got into I've it. I've watched it, but, like, I can't... It was years ago. I really can't remember watch much about it. Okay. Um... So I'm just going to go into some of the controversy because you guys know I love to dive deep into why things are controversial. So some different things on the controversy of DID. So DID was first included in the DSM-3 in 1980 um, as multiple personality disorder. It's still controversial and there's a couple factors that lead to it being controversial. So, the first is the debate regarding what causes the disorder. So, there's two main views, but they're completely opposing. One is that, is the trauma model, which states that DID is a severe form of PTSD, originating in severe and chronic childhood trauma. So, the trauma model really states that, like, DID does not come out of a single trauma. It really requires a variety of really severe trauma throughout childhood for it to develop. <laughs> you okay, Lauren? You look confused. 
No, I just realized I skipped a slide, oh, so go ahead. Okay, we'll sl- we'll put it in where, where, when it feels right, just let me know. Okay. We'll get it in there. Um, so that's the trauma model. And mm-hmm. then there's the fantasy model. So the fantasy model suggests that DID is predominantly due to suggestion and enactment and is facilitated by high levels of fantasy proneness and suggestibility. So in people who have active fantasy lives and are highly suggestible, it may come out of those traits, um, which is, I mean, completely different views on how it's created. There also, DID might be under or misdiagnosed quite a bit. Um, So you're saying a lot of times the under or misdiagnosis can be because of unfamiliarity with the spectrum of dissociative disorders. Mm -hmm. Again, this is why you need a specialist. Um, The existence of feigned DID, so basically the fact that there is documented cases of this being something that people have pretended to have or you know in munchausen's other things like that and also the reluctance of people with did to open up about their symptoms again their stigma the media representation does not help there's a lot of complicated stuff and so a lot of people with these symptoms may not discuss them and you know, just lack of knowledge, I think, again, because some people don't agree with it being a diagnosis, mm-hmm. so it may be dismissed. So now I'm going to just tell you some neurological evidence. Ooh. Because I love me some evidence of why I believe DID does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the fact that I've seen it before. <laughs> right. That really that also helps. <laughs> yeah, having seen it definitely uh, convinced me that it exists. Um, or some people deserve Oscars for the level of acting uh, right. that was occurring. Right. I strongly believe it does exist after having seen it. So, what they found is that in the first evidence of personality state dependent brain activation was found in 1985. So the personality-dependent brain activation means that there was evidence of different patterns of brain activation when the person was in different personality states. So they were showing actual neurological evidence of a separation. Cool. So in 1985, they found it in a single patient at rest, and it has been confirmed in independent studies over time. So there is some early evidence. That being said, that was five years after it was first put in the DSM. So in 2003, they had a multi-participant stimulus-driven brain imaging study that, again, showed personality state-dependent processing of neutral and trauma-related memory scripts. So that would be multiple people They were showing different stimuli in brain imaging and were able Mm -hmm. to show different processing. Interesting. Um, There was a follow-up study. There was a follow-up study that was shown that individuals with DID can be distinguished from DID simulating healthy controls with high and low levels of fantasy proneness. 
so they were actually to able to differentiate in brain scans people who pretended to have DID and people who actually had DID. Oh, I love that. That's so helpful. Yeah, I can't find the exact studies in what in the DID simulating whether that was a control group or people who had actively in their life pretended to have them versus people who were acting I feel up. like I don't know. I feel like neurologically, like, you would see that the people that are pretending to have the disorder, probably, like, the creative side of their brain would be more activated, right? Yeah, I would assume so, like, some of the fantasy-prone areas. Um, yeah. There's also parts of our brain that light up when we're lying, so if you know that you don't actually have it, it might show that. So, again, I could not find and access the full study. So I don't know if the controls were like just simulating it day of or exactly how they did that. Mm -hmm. um, but in an independent sample, they were able to replicate these results of the personality states in DID and the differentiating brain activation patterns. So there is some neurological things. Um, there's also some neurobiological similarities between personality states and DID and PTSD, which does support the trauma model. There are some similar yeah, things. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I do believe the trauma model. Um, I do too. For the most part, yeah. So there's other things that they found with neurostructural evidence of DID existing. There was a smaller hippocampal volume pretty consistently in people with DID. Um, so, which is similar to some of the stuff you'll see with other trauma disorders. There's negative correlations between childhood maltreatment and hippocampal volume. So the more childhood abuse you have, theoretically, the smaller hippocampus you may have. So that is kind of across the board. Um, it's been reported in unmedicated individuals from the general community and in people with psycho psychiatric disorders. Um, so there was a researcher, Chalavi, and his colleagues built on this evidence to study hippocampal global and subfield volumes in PTSD and DID in relation to childhood trauma with the aim of directly testing the trauma model for DID. They found a negative correlation between hippocampal volume and childhood trauma across the two disorders, therefore providing neuroanatomical evidence for the clinical observations that DID is, in fact, related to severe childhood trauma. Um, it's important because neuroanatomical data are unlikely to be subject to cognitive manipulation. So the literal brain changes that happen as a result of childhood trauma, you really cannot fake that. No. Um, but that would link it to trauma if you're seeing that across the board. So the combination of that and the personality state dependent changes in brain activation patterns would suggest that it is related. And that it's real. Ooh, I love science. I do too. Um, but just a bit more to the controversy and how hard this actually is to diagnose. Um, mm -hmm. A little bit more. Got it. I love the controversy. Um, so there was a study in 1988 
which surveyed clinicians to assess the reactions they had encountered from others as a result of their interest in DID. 62 people responded who had treated patients with DID. 80% said they'd experienced modern to extreme reactions from colleagues, including attempts to refuse their patients' admissions to hospitals or force discharge of their patients. Um, even when a severe suicidal risk was present. So there is, you know, in 88, there was still a large amount of stigma in the field of other clinicians reacting negatively to clinicians who did treat this. Um, so, you know, possibly another reason for the controversy could be the DID is to dispute over the meaning of symptoms. Is DID a disorder with unique and a subtle set of core symptoms and behaviors that some clinicians do not see it? Or is it willful malingering or symptoms caused by the clinicians who think that something is there? So there is the are people faking it, are therapists mm -hmm. causing it sort of concerns. Um, and a lot of people are also concerned, again, with some of the documented fake cases in the legal system, is that the fear that criminals will get off without being punished by a gullible justice system which attributes behavior to another personality and doesn't hold someone responsible. So there is that legal ethical concern as well. Right. Um, there are... Yeah, some people think that it's more caused by hypnotic suggestion, misdiagnosis. They've said that patients described as having DID are highly hypnotizable and they're therefore very suggestible. So they might follow the clinician on that mm -hmm. again, which is why you need a specialist to make sure um, right. that, you know, you're getting a really accurate diagnosis. They've also found that Horowitz and Braun found that 70% of patients who had been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder would, based on a chart review, so just looking at all of the documented symptoms, would be equally as likely to meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder. Um, and they concluded that, so 70% could potentially have borderline personality disorder instead of DID. However, they found other patients that could not be characterized as having borderline personality disorder, so they did conclude that it mm -hmm. was a distinct entity, but overdiagnosed. And again, this is where the differential diagnosis piece comes in, because DID does sound like it's very distinctive, and in some ways it is, but the symptoms are very similar to symptoms of some other disorders where similar mm -hmm. behavior might be seen but coming for a very different reason which is why it's so important to really go through the process to know for sure and get the treatment yep. that's going to be most helpful because borderline personality disorder has entirely different treatment that works yes. for it so you and, want to and make just sure. like tons of research on borderline personality disorder too of exactly how to treat it right so. and so you want to make sure you're getting the right diagnosis so you get the right treatment mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean they say that in general practitioners who accept the validity of did as a diagnosis attribute it to the effects of exposure to situations of extreme ambivalence and abuse in early childhood that are copied mm -hmm. by with an elaborate form of denial so the child believes the event to be happening to someone else 
perhaps starting out as an imaginary companion because of the stage of life a child is in when having imaginary companions exist. The solution to severe trauma may be a dissociative identity. Um, and then you'd be more likely to get PTSD versus DID when things happen later in childhood or during adult life. So basically, you know, kids have imaginary friends. That's completely developmentally normal. And dissociating mm -hmm. during a traumatic event is an entirely normal response. So the theory yep. is that it can really only start in very early childhood trauma, where your brain just processes it in such a way that other identities that maybe started out as imaginary friends do become a real part of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I feel like this segues kind of nicely into the one slide that I skipped. Um, I love I feel it like when it people, happens like that. I know. Uh, so I feel like a lot of people have questions about like altars and like what is like the function of an altar. Um, and the best way I've learned to understand it is um, actually through a type of trauma therapy. Um, so the type of trauma therapy that I'm referring to is called internal family systems or IFS. Um, Megan, had you heard of this one before? I've heard of it, but I'm not very familiar with it. Okay. So, um, it was created by someone named Dick Schwartz. And the thought behind this type of therapy is that, you know, if, we go through difficult life events. It's uh -oh, normal to... Oh, you can't hear me? I can now. I'm sure the recording's fine. I just couldn't. But I okay. Back. Okay, cool. Um, so the thought behind this type of therapy is, you know, we tend to dissociate from certain parts of ourselves if we've gone through, you know, traumatic life events. And... What's cool about this is it translates really well to dissociative identity disorder. I know some people use this type of therapy with dissociative identity disorder, um, but it also helps to explain the function of the different alters or the different parts. So according to IFS, everyone has a self and the self can and should lead the individual's internal system. The non-extreme intention of each part is something positive for the individual. And it's important to kind of look at the system as there's no bad parts and the goal of therapy is not to eliminate parts like that horror movie I was talking telling you guys about um, but instead to help them find their non-extreme roles right mm -hmm. so um, the first group of parts that people may find and, and this could show up for people with DID as alters is something called exiles so these are young parts that have experienced trauma and often become isolated from the rest of the system in an effort to protect the individual from free from feeling the pain, terror, fear, and so on of these parts, which makes sense. You know, as, as people, especially as adults, you know, we really don't want to think about the terrible things that we've gone through. So it makes sense how maybe this young part, you know, is, is in there, but doesn't reveal itself. Mm -hmm. Um, two, if exiled, um, it can become increasingly extreme and desperate in an effort to be cared for and tell their story. And it can leave the individual feeling fragile and vulnerable. So exiles are definitely more of like that child part that kind of hangs on to, 
you know, the bad stuff that we've been through. And, um, you know, it it may actually show up as like childlike if you do experience this type of alter. Mm -hmm. Then we have the managers. So these are parts that run the day-to-day life of the individual. So usually this is the person that's presenting themselves at work, um, with friends and family, stuff like that. They, they attempt to keep the individual in control of every situation and relationship in an effort to protect parts from feeling any hurt or rejection. And they can do this in any number of ways or through a combination of parts. Striving, controlling, evaluating, caretaking, terrorizing, and so on. So they really try to keep, you know, our shit together, so to speak, to make it look like, you know, things are good. And then the other one is firefighters. So this is the group of parts that react when exiles are activated in an effort to control and extinguish their feelings. So they can do this in any number of ways, including drug or alcohol use, self-mutilation, so self-harm, binge eating, sex binges. Um, I mean, there's many other different ones that the firefighter might do. And this could be like one of the more harmful parts if we think about it in that way. Um, They have the same goals as the managers to keep the exiles away, but they use different strategies and often more harmful strategies. Yeah. So, um, and I I haven't been fully trained in IFS, but I know in a lot of the EMDR trainings, they definitely reference this a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful to kind of use this model when understanding different alters that people may experience because you can see how each one serves like a very specific function in somebody whose brain is a little bit more fragmented. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty cool. I'm going to have to learn more about that. I always yeah, find it's it neat. interesting. Oh, okay. So now I'm going to go into a story and it's a story that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. So first I'm going to tell you about the story as it is written and then we're going to talk about what really happened because they're very very different so Mm -hmm. i'm going to talk about sybil so lauren what do you remember learning about the sybil case just that she had i don't know was it like 12 different alters or personalities it is 16 Um, 16 16. okay so even more than that um and that she went through like horrific abuse Mm -hmm. definitely so did you ever learn about the controversy behind this case didn't learn about the controversy no Ooh, girl you are in for a ride today um so first i'm just gonna tell you about like the book as it was written i have read it sybil i did find it an enjoyable book Um, but something being an enjoyable book does not mean that it is psychologically accurate. And when you break this case down, there are a lot of problems. I know in my, in my, um, you know, psych disorders class, our teacher made it Mm -hmm. very clear that the Sybil case had actually been widely accepted to be debunked, but not a lot of people know that and not a lot of people know why. So... Yeah, I remember we were, um, we had to read a book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, Mm -hmm. like, instead. 
Yeah. I think I don't think I've read it, but I've heard of it. It's terrible. It sounds off. It's it's not it's pleasant. A lot of no. the books on abuser. Yeah. So it's like, well, that's okay. awful. The case of Sybil is pretty interesting. So basically, Sybil began to it's a pseudonym, I'll get into her real thing. But um the psychiatrist whose name was Cornelia Weber Wilbur and Dr. Wilbur was a Freudian psychiatrist so we're already off to a great start here <laughs> um, so basically Sybil began to seek treatment for social anxiety and some memory issues okay straightforward reason and also memory issues with anxiety or depression are not actually uncommon so memory right. issues can be almost anything depending on the severity and mm -hmm. so she came in for that she had extended therapy involving given IV barbiturates and hypnosis interviews simultaneously oh. um, and eventually Sybil talks about her six she manifests 16 different personalities during treatment and you know eventually reveals that she had severe physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her mother Hattie so I'm just gonna roll down this is a list of Sybil's altars with the year they appeared to have dissociated from the central personality um, I like the names are also here to protect privacy. So there's mm -hmm. Sybil Isabel Dorset, the main personality. There's Victoria okay. Antoinette Charlot, nicknamed Vicky, who's self-assured and a sophisticated young French girl. There's Ooh. Peggy Lou Baldwin, assertive, enthusiastic, and often angry. There's Peggy Ann Baldwin, a counterpart of Peggy Lou, but who's more fearful than angry. There's Mary Lucinda Saunders Dorset, a thoughtful, contemplative, and maternal homebody. Marcia Lynn Dorset, an extremely emotional writer and painter. Vanessa Gale Dorset, intensely dramatic, fun-loving, and a talented musician. There's Mike Dorset, who's one of Sybil's two main selves, a or two male selves, sorry, a builder and a carpenter. There's Sid, mm -hmm. who's the second male, a carpenter and general handyman. He took his name from Isabel from Sybil's initials. There's Nancy Luann Baldwin, interested in politics as fulfillment of biblical prophecy and intensely afraid of Roman Catholics. Oh. Which are interesting personality quirks. Um, yeah. There's Sybil Ann Dorset, who's listless. There's Ruthie Dorset, who's a baby, and one of the less developed selves. Clara Dorset, mm -hmm. intensely religious and highly critical of Sybil. Helen Dorset is intensely afraid but determined to achieve fulfillment. Marjorie Dorset, serene, vivacious, and quick to laugh. And then the blonde, a nameless, perpetual teenager who is optimistic. So the book narrative describes simple selves gradually becoming co-conscious, able to communicate and share responsibilities, and having musical composition and art published under their names. Wilbur attempts to integrate Sybil's various selves, first convincing them 
via hypnosis that they are all the same age and encouraging them to merge. At the end, a new optimist to self called the blonde emerged, preceding Sybil's final integration into a whole individual with full knowledge. So that's the book. Okay. Good stuff. So here's where we things start to come apart a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. So is Shirley Mason. So Shirley Mason is who oh. Sybil actually was. So Mason was born and raised in Dodge Center, Minnesota. She was an only child, the only surviving child. Um, she graduated from high school in 1941 and became an art student at at college in the 1950s. She was a substitute teacher. She had long suffered from breakdowns and blackouts, as she put it. So she began psychotherapy mm -hmm. with Cornelia B. Wilbur, a Freudian psychiatrist, and their sessions are the basis of the book. People reading the book actually recognized Mason as Sybil, but she had severed all ties with her past and was living in West Virginia. She then moved to Kentucky to live near Wilbur and teach at a college. Um, and some other interesting things are that Wilbur diagnosed uh, Mason with breast cancer in 1990. Nice. Why a psychiatrist is diagnosing breast cancer is beyond me. Uh, Problematic. She declined treatment and went into remission. The following year, Wilbur developed Parkinson's disease. And then... Uh, Mason, Shirley Mason moved into Wilbur's house to take care of her until no. she died. So they, oh, that's very problematic. Very problematic. So the diagnosis is questionable. There's also multiple ethical concerns with this. Um, there were a bunch of paintings that were signed by Shirley, um, so she left a lot of paintings, but yeah, so when Wilbur got Parkinson's disease, Shirley moved in to take care of her, which is bizarre. Um, she also, uh, Mason, Shirley Mason was a devout Seventh-day Adventist, and when her breast cancer returned, she gave away her books and paintings to friends and left the rest of her estate to the Seventh-day Adventist TV minister. She died in 98. Oh, wow. Okay. So, there are a lot of kind of controversial things about the diagnosis itself and some ethical red flags. So, Shirley Mason's diagnosis has been challenged quite heavily. There's a psychiatrist named Herbert Spigal who actually did treat her for several sessions while Wilbur was on vacation. And he felt mm. during those sessions that Wilbur was manipulating Mason into believing, behaving as if she had multiple personalities and did not. Wow. He suspected Wilbur of having publicized Mason's case for financial gain. According to him, Wilbur's client was hysteric, but did not show any evidence of multiple personalities outside of her sessions with Cornelia or um, Dr. Wilbur. And he stated that she did deny to him that she was multiple, but claimed that the doctor wanted her 
to exhibit other personalities. He says he confronted Wilbur, who responded that the publisher would not publish the books unless it was what she said it was. Um, Spiegel relieved that he had audio tapes in which Wilbur tells Mason about some of the other personalities she's already seen in sessions. So the doctor was explaining her personalities to her on a tape. Um, He cited the tapes as it. He claimed that she was very suggestible and again she was given IV barbiturates and then hypnotized while being given IV drugs, which is a very controversial display. She was also given sodium pentanol, or what they used to think was truth serum, so she was heavily drugged Um. during a lot of sessions and hypnotized. Um, There's also, again, like, bringing up repressed memories is also quite a tricky thing of if it's actually repressed memories are real or not. During hypnosis and under drugs, they have shown that you actually can convince someone that things have happened that are proven to have not happened before. Mm-hmm. So it's some kind of dicey thing. I've also seen, again, personal letters, um, some of which there is a report that uh, she did, Shirley Mason did actually send a letter to her psychiatrist defending that she did not have multiple personality disorders that she sent years before the book was published. Um, so a couple things that we know that do bring this under suspicion, and again, I, I never met her, never assessed her, cannot say with absolute certainty what um, actually happened here, but there are reasons the field is pretty suspicious, which is one, Dr. Wilbur had a known interest in multiple personality disorder and actually, in her notes, did give Shirley Mason a lot of information to research about multiple personalities before any of her personalities emerged. So did give her books and have her research it and be like, this is so interesting, look into it. Um, Again, not a smoking gun. Or anything, and I'm calling it multiple personality disorder because that's what they would have called it, and that's what it's referred to in the book. At the time. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence of leading questions that were used under hypnosis on the tapes, and, you know, telling her, like, oh, you have this personality, you have this personality. Very questionable for a doctor to be telling someone what personalities they have. Um... Maybe not always, you know, genuinely they might not know and it might be therapeutically beneficial to tell your client what you've seen, but I haven't listened to the tapes, but other psychiatrists have said that they are questionable. Mm -hmm. Um, The use of multiple medications such as, you know, the barbiturates, the IV, the sodium pentanol given during hypnosis sessions, drugging and hypnotizing someone before they exhibit multiple personalities and then them exhibiting multiple personalities after those sessions. It's questionable practice at best, right? It is still entirely possible that she really did have multiple personalities. Again, I don't know, but the amount of drugs she was given is questionable to give someone that much and hypnotize them and then have everything suddenly emerge at once. Yeah. Um... 
The doctor was giving her 14 to 18 hours of free therapy every week and was financially supporting her. And here's where we're getting into the big ethics is, okay, that's a lot of free therapy. Not that free therapy is unethical, but that amount and financially supporting your clients is not okay. Again, ethics have changed. Also, though, I want to take a moment to talk about the ethics of this book deal in and of itself. This doctor did not publish a case study. She published, she hired a journalist to go over her notes and publish a best-selling novel. She massively profited off of this woman having multiple personality disorders. Mm -hmm. And... This is where it goes tricky, is I firmly believe it's unethical for practitioners to have massive financial gain from their client's illness. There's a difference between doing anonymous case studies in a journal and doing journal articles and publishing a best-selling novel. And this is where it gets really, like, it is unethical and, like, financially supporting your client is unethical. Also... The fact that Shirley Mason moved states to be closer to her doctor when her doctor chose to move and then moved in together and lived together and did caretaking, that is extremely unethical and is evidence of a very unethical and inappropriate relationship between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think ultimately when a therapist is being this unethical... You have to call in the question the ethics of their practice and the ethics of their diagnosis because she got a book deal so early on in treatment on the basis of this. We don't know the specifics, but other people who were working with them, who worked with her, who never saw any evidence and do have, you know, remember conversations in which they admitted it was fake. We don't have any evidence of that. Also, there is some controversy because that doctor who said that they admitted to faking it didn't come out until after everyone was dead. So again, we cannot verify any of this. But I do think there's enough ethical concerns that we cannot say with absolute certainty either way if Sybil is real or fake because there's so many ethical concerns surrounding it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So. Very complex. Yes. It's an interesting case. So I just wanted to go through, since it is the most famous case, and it is something that's really controversial if it was true or not, um, which again brings into people not thinking it's a real disorder, but it is important to just take Sybil with a massive grain of salt, because at the very least... There was a very unethical relationship happening there, and we don't know why or how or the motives to any of this. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's that's unfortunate, and, and like you said, I think, you know, that was definitely, like, a practitioner who took advantage of somebody, and, you know, it's it's something that I think a lot of therapists have to be really careful of, is taking advantage of people's, like, vulnerability and... You know, especially people that are, like, easily suggestible. Mm-hmm. Gotta be careful. Um, but, yeah, I mean, aside from the Sybil story, I did want to share um, some real testimonials of people who do have DID um, and are 
you know, doing well and navigating life. And, you know, I think it's important to share those stories too. So, um, I found this on an infinite minds website. Um, so these are some survivor stories. So, um, this first one is from Jamie. So Jamie says, I've been living with DID my whole life, but was only diagnosed three years ago. While it sure does have its challenges, I have managed to make a pretty good life for myself. I am certain this life is due to the gift of having DID, which allowed me to become the person I was meant to be. All things considered, I would call myself successful. I own my own home. I attended and graduated from the University of Central Florida for my undergraduate degree, then went to earn a master's and specialist degree. I work full-time as a special needs preschool teacher, and I also work part-time as an in-home early interventionist with children who have developmental delays. In addition, I run a support group for people with dissociative identities as well as being the director of an infinite mind. People with DID can succeed and lead great lives. It is time people started to notice. Okay. So yeah, so that's Jamie. Do, and she runs an infinite mind. Gotta love the survivor stories because again, life is very hard for people with CID, but with proper treatment, yeah. a lot of them are thriving. Yep. It's all about learning how to manage the symptoms and make your system work for you. And these people are doing that. Um, here's another. I thought when I first read the introduction to tell my story, that the term successful meant I had a great career, loads of educational degrees. Well, I don't have those, and as I read the stories of others, I find that my doc was right. Living a happy, healthy life is successful and important. I was diagnosed 25 years ago when my life and career fell apart. I have worked hard in therapy on trauma issues, and most of the time I had to teach myself how to recover my children. I still switch most of the time, and I accept this as this is who I am. We are a cooperative collective in which everyone has a valid say in how we live our life. I am on disability, however, I am very active in volunteer work. This gives me the flexibility to back away when I need to take care of me. Each day brings new discoveries and new strengths. Some of my children have been growing up since their time of rescue. Some are still small and some are still not ready to be found. So I'm pretty sure when she's saying her children, I think she's referring to her altars. I have many smart, capable women that would love to restart a career, but they agree that some of the stresses are too much for our children, so we find fulfillment through our volunteer work. My childhood was filled with father, mother, uncles, grandfather, cousins, sisters, and friends of family abuse. The courts in the 70s did more harm than good, and school became a place of hell when a friend decided to tell why I ran away. For this reason, I have one name. However, that is beginning to change and everyone is being becoming comfortable with the idea of being an individual in a large happy group this is our great success and we are proud to be called multiple today thank you for letting me share so yeah i mean and with this survivor um i think it's great that they're really focusing on success in living happy and healthy i mean you know for some people it, it can be severe where you know you're not able to work but it sounds like they're still happy and healthy and going to therapy and that's wonderful mm -hmm. um i'll share one more okay. um i'm a survivor living with did i have been off and on in therapy oh wait sorry i lost my spot okay 
I have three college degrees, including my master's. I have several successful careers, including military and professional. I am multilingual by educating myself, an artist, a teacher, and a mentor. I successfully raised two beautiful, successful children, unfortunately as a single parent, due to two failed marriages. But I learned my lessons and did not bring my baggage into more relationships that would complicate my children's lives. I am an athlete, a competitive swimmer, and a vital 50-year-old woman. I resent when people want to say that we are broken or damaged. We are brilliant, contributing members of the community, and as far as I can see, many times we are coping with life's challenges in a more healthy manner than most. We are experts at keeping ourselves and loved ones safe. Sorry if I sound arrogant, but those who once prayed on us called us weak and crazy need a reality check. Peace out. <laughs> I like the peace out there. That's a fun addition. I know. So yeah, so it's it's cool because um, not only with like DID, but other disorders too, a lot of people um, are really amazing at art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really cool, it's just like a really cool thing. Like I ended up stumbling upon like a Reddit thread um, where it was um, dissociative identity disorder, um, excuse me, survivors um, who were sharing their art Mm -hmm. and it's a really cool thread like some of the things they paint and draw and like put together are amazing nice yeah good stuff so it's definitely a cool thing some of what the research says on did very cool cool stuff that's all i got more do you got good shit going on in the world today Um, 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 um trying to think do you want to go first yeah i can go first this is like good shit going on in my own life is that my one year wedding anniversary is this weekend um and what a weird year it's been but i am looking forward to celebrating and eating some delicious takeout and just hanging out so grateful for an entire year of marriage in the weirdest year i've ever lived through Yes, the the uh, quarantine literally happened right after a wedding, so it's been wild. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that's a good one. Well, I hope you and your hubby have a very fun weekend. Oh, thank you. And also, I guess since we haven't done an episode in a while, I did get my second COVID vaccine. It made me very, very Ooh-oh. sick, but I am better now. So I had some side effects, but other than that, doing good and feeling so grateful to be protected from COVID. Yay! Yes, I'm working on getting my vaccine soon, too. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled. Um, But then, good shit for me. I'm honestly just really happy that the weather's getting better and I can go on walks again. That's, like, my favorite way to get out and get exercise, so... I'm pretty excited about that. Nice. I'm excited too. It is lovely outside lately, and I've missed the outdoors, especially with quarantine. It's nice that we can go out more now and just be outside and still be safe. Agreed. Well. Alright, guys. Well, thanks for getting spooky, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.